For me, it's good to be back among you this morning. I've been away for five weeks just from Minnesota in Scotland with my family, enjoying the holidays back uh, this past Tuesday. A bit jet-lagged, but, uh, but good. I was certainly glad to miss all this business about eating healthy. Um, more than happy to roll through some shortbread and uh, fish and chips and uh, scones and anything else that came into play. And you know, I, th- I thought it was kind of interesting because Wednesday morning right away, uh, we got back Tuesday afternoon, and Kevin and I met for breakfast at, you know, where else, the Pancake House there. And I, you know, he's not here this morning, and I watched him take a second jug of syrup to his pancakes on that. So I think he's kind of getting his, right, before we all have to start this thing on the 3rd of February. And uh, yeah, it was... <laughs> It was good to just reconnect with Kevin a bit again. I love our conversations. Uh, you know, he, he bought this last time, um, so I'm not going to tell you about our next meeting because that'll be my turn. But the one after that, I will send out a whole sort of churchwide email, um, and you guys can all join us. It's quite fun, and he does buy, uh, and, uh, and that'll be good. But before I left, we had a number of conversations, again, just charting out a little bit of, of my involvement uh, from time to time when he has to be away and he assigned me the sermon this morning from our study in the book of proverbs on streetwise on uh the, the subject being parenting <laughs> which i mean it's a ton of it's less pressure now it was a ton of pressure in the first service because my five children were here and i thought the last thing that can happen right is they start screwing around melting down and everything because i i lose all my credibility in that moment, it brings to mind a story John Ortberg uh, once told of having to be set up for family photos. And he's like pastor guy, right? You know, and he's 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 basically threatening his daughter with her stuffed animal's life and saying, you will smile, you know, and holding the stuffed animal ransom for the whole thing. So, yeah, time I mean, the pressure's off. It's just my wife. We can chuckle about our kids. And, you know, just even as I thought about all of this and, and recognizing, too, some of the pressure just because we all think so differently about parenting and what's involved with that. And, and what I realized and what I know day to day is that I'm certainly not an expert on the subject. I mean, we have five children. That means that we know how it works. Um, it doesn't know, mean that we know what to do about it found a few interesting quotes this week, at least for me, that describe the process of parenting well. And that is that uh, the first one was, and see if you resonate with some of these, that being a parent is dirty and scary, beautiful and hard, miraculous and exhausting and thankless and joyful and frustrating all at once. Second one I liked, he said, uh, before I got married, I had six theories about raising children. Now I have six children and no theories. And this last one sort of tugged at my heart. It, it really, that I think spoke to me in some, in some deep waves. This uh, person said, through the blur, I wondered if I was alone or if other parents felt the same way that I did. That everything involving our children was painful in some way. The emotions, whether they were joy or sorrow, love or pride, were so deep and sharp that in the end they left you raw, exposed, and yes, in pain. Human heart was not designed to beat outside the human body, and yet each child represented just that. A parent's heart bared, beating forever outside its chest. Does that resonate with anyone else in here? It did for me, and I recognize there's no real manual for this, that the journey of parenting is filled with wonder and tragedy. 
pain and love, fear and joy. It's all mixed up in the whole big pot that is this journey of parenting. And, and for me, amidst all the confusion and fear around it, it's some words that I just mentioned briefly from a guy named Dallas Willard. He's a theologian and philosopher in today's world. And they bring me some solace in the midst of, of just my own journey in this. He says, you know, at the end of the day, the universe is a safe place. In life and in death, it's a safe place because wherever you are, God is there. That brings me solace and comfort. I don't know what pain or tragedy may lie ahead. I know people have experienced that here. Clearly, it's been in our world. It doesn't take the pain away, but there's some solace to recognize that the world is ultimately, at the end of the day, a safe place because God is there. We sang just even that, that the love of God reaches in even to the deepest parts of hell. That the love of God is present. So in light of that, just by way of setting this up, we come back to the Proverbs then this morning in the series that we're in in Streetwise. And Kevin, I said, I said Kevin, what, give me some verses. I mean, help me out here. What should I do? He said, ah, oh, just, you know, do whatever. And, and, uh, and we were going back and forth. And, and I, you know, I decided to stay away from spare the rod, spoil the child, right? That probably wasn't going to be a good one to dive into. But as I was looking into it a bit, the one that really landed on me was one maybe you've heard of as well. And that's Proverbs 22.6 where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. What we'll do this morning as we get into the bulk of the sermons, we're really going to land on that first phrase of train up. You'll see in a moment. But before I pray and we start getting into the sermon, there's just one qualification that I need to make. And, and that is, I'm guessing, even from the moment some of you walked in the door, opened up the bulletin, right, read down to where the, the, the sermon was and saw it was about parenting, you already have tuned out, right? Checked out. This isn't going to be relevant to me on that. And I'm just going to ask you to hang with it a bit because I think what we'll find when we understand rightly what's going on in this verse about training up our children, that has far more to do with just the parents of the children. That's about a whole community coming around our kids. So if that is a teaser, let's pray as we begin, and I'll jump into the message. God, I thank you for the sense of your presence in worship, how it anchors us, how it centers us, it sabbaths us, reorienting us towards you. I pray that as we try to figure out this whole messy journey of life, at least to some degree this morning, that your spirit would again be present to teach and to guide and to lead and to help us along in how in the world to do this as a community. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, so train up a child in the way he should go. I don't know what images or thoughts or emotions or assumptions uh, come into your mind when you just hear that verse. How many of you have heard this verse before? Train up your child. So a lot of you. I'm not sure what's there. I can give you a couple of mine that came into my head as I was doing the sermon preparation. The first one for me came from my days in Catholic elementary school, right here in Wyzata at St. Bart's, uh, down the road, you know, in downtown 
why is that? And some of the images that came into my mind were these, you know, perfect rows of desks and all of us sitting there, us boys in our baby blue, they were stubbly uniforms, but baby blue uniforms, right? And, and, uh, and the nun is teaching us with this just hardcore catechetical instruction about religious principles and thoughts and stuff that we needed to have dialed in with all that. I mean, it's training us up. And we were terrified <laughs> of this as these little first graders. And she had this reputation that preceded her as we all came into her classroom, setting the stage for all of elementary school. And we had heard stories about how she sometimes handled the children. And I don't know if you can maybe you've been in a classroom sometimes where, where they have a whole wall devoted towards the closet for the kids, right? Where they come and they hang up their coats and they put their boots and their mittens and all of that kind of stuff there. And then they shut the big, you know, garage door-like thing and go on. Well, she was known, supposedly, and I think it was more than just legend, that if any of the kids were out of line, that she would pick them up, hang them on one of the closet hooks, and shut the door, <laughs> She once dragged me by my ear in from the playground. I won't tell you what was going on, but I mean, it was hardcore. She was the real deal. And we were becoming soldiers of Christ. I mean, she, this was the language being used at this time. And, and the primary responsibility was that we were going to fight against the heresy of those Protestants. <laughs> so that's what we did. You know, that's what we were training. So that was one of the first images that came. Into my mind. The second image, right alongside of it, that came into my mind was then from my life as a Protestant. <laughs> and uh, my parents started attending here uh, when I was 10 years old. And so I lived in this weird world where I went to elementary school every day and Catholic school and then went to church and all of this stuff. And, and from, from the environment among Protestants was, I, I think the, the image that came to mind was Awana kinds of Bible verse drilling. You know, we're going to drill you with the Bible verses here. You know, it's sola scriptura, baby. We're going to read the Bible and show those Catholics a thing or two. See, it's not quite as funny, right, when it's about us. But... But it was that. And, and so it was like the heart is deceitful before you know, above all else. And and, uh, you know, the, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And we're doing the whole Romans road, you know, walking along. And, and then, oh, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us your sins and to cleanse. And it's by grace you've been saved through faith. There's no works involved. Oh, uh, it's the free gift of God. And I, see, I did my my Iwana well. It's all still there. <laughs> you know, as I reflect on that a little bit, you know, if the whole Bible is inspired by God, why do we always choose the same 10 verses, right? <laughs> you know, to, if it's me, you know, one of my favorite stories in the text comes from the Old Testament. And it's when Elisha, the prophet, is heading on up to Bethel to do some work there. And, you know, some of you know I teach at Bethel, so I already resonate with this story. And as he's walking up to Bethel, he's walking along the... And this is the inspired word of God here we're talking about, right? He's walking up to Bethel, and a bunch of kids come out and say, yeah, go on up to Bethel, you bald-headed prophet. <laughs> you know, I can totally resonate with this, right? So taking, you know, he, he, I would think Elijah should be in this prophet, that he'd be filled with grace and compassion and mercy for the youth and just say, oh, you know, the young and it is what it is. And, and yet what he does is he calls out a curse and two she bears come out of the bushes and maul like 39 of the youth. That's I mean, now that's my kind of a wanna program. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what to do. I get all these silly images that come into my mind. I don't know 
what come into your and not bad. I'm so grateful for the, the the Catholic instruction that I received. I'm so grateful for the Bible instruction that I received. But I think both of them, to some degree, fall short of what maybe this verse in Proverbs means in terms of what we're talking about with training up our children. And as I began to dig exegetically into this verse to try to understand more of what's at play there, uh, I found some interesting things specifically around this idea of training up. And I can't say for sure what kinds of emotions and images would have been raised in the minds of the Jewish people as they heard this phrase. But I think we get some clues as we get back into the original language of the text where we see what this word train up actually means. It's derived from the Hebrew word kanach. And what kanach means literally in the Hebrew is to narrow in or more specifically to hedge in or maybe even more so to put a hedge around. That among the images that would have been raised in the minds of the people hearing it through the Hebrew faith when it was originally written is that there's this sense to train up the child is to put the pathway in place around them, to, to, to put hedges around them, to guide their journey. There's some great pictures that Andrea found of some British hedges. And they really, I just was driving those, you know, a few weeks ago, wrong side of the road, you know, kind of clip them as you went by. But, but those are the hedges. And they really guide your path. As I thought about that a little bit further then, I thought, so what were the Jews like when they were hedging their children? And is there anything about the way that they were hedging that we could learn today and think about for our own life with our own kids? And and there was two things that came out of that part of the study that I'm just pulling this all together that I thought might be relevant for us this morning to consider when we're thinking about how to hedge in our children, and I'll say more about that and training them up. The first thing that really stood out for me about who the Jewish people were was that, and this was hard for me to get my head around, it's, it's getting less so but as I think about it, but uh, for the Jews, they first and foremost define themselves as a person in community. They first and foremost define themselves uh, as being around people who shared values and beliefs and rituals and traditions and stories. They told stories constantly about the journey that they were all on together. And that's very different than the kind of spirituality in which I often find myself that's highly individualistic in nature. I have my personal savior. I'm doing my personal journey of faith. I I may know you, but I can kind of choose my church and I kind of pick my church according to the things that matter maybe to me. And and community becomes functionally optional in some ways. I mean, Kevin and I, we get along you know pretty well together. Right, Kevin, and it's fine. You know, it's not necessary that we're in relationship. Right. It's good for you and me both. Right. But but it's 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 the Jews wouldn't have thought that way. They saw themselves connected with everybody else in the community, which is why the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, when they were calling out the spiritual life of the people of the community and recognizing as being it distorted, what they often said were things like, you guys, you're not taking care of the orphans among you. You're not taking care of the widows among you, the people to whom you are connected. You're no longer even paying attention to them. It's why Jesus in the New Testament and some of his greatest teaching is saying, here's the thing. If you, they are hungry, you feed them. If they are thirsty, give them a drink. If they are in prison, visit them. Because if you do that to the least of my brothers, you're actually doing it to me. 
And that's not some nice, like, little metaphorical, symbolic image. There was this sense of connectedness that Paul would have shared as well, in which when he talks about the body of Christ being together, that they're interconnected, that they are a community. And he he says that if there's sin or pain in some members of the body, it somehow, in a weird, kind of unexplainable way, affects the whole thing. Have you ever been, I mean, I'm sure many of you have visited many different churches and you can kind of sense the spirit of the place, can't you, when you walk in? Sort of the ethos of the place of what's happening there is what the, what the community is and what is shaping it. I just, I have a hard time getting my head around that because for me it's been about the personal journey. But, but I wonder what it would be like if I actually saw myself as connected to you, not just because I'm choosing this church. Or what would it be like if I was, what would it be like, Dick, if I was connected to you and I cared as much about you as, as I did about my children or about uh, other people? And what would it be like to think that way? Where maybe some of my worship songs aren't always, all I need is you, Jesus, all I need is you, the rest of you. <laughs> Something to think about, connected in community. The second thing that really stood out for me as I looked into this a little further was that as they were the community, the thing that God consistently called out of them to identify them as the people of God, as opposed to everybody else in this world, to be the light of the world, uh, was simply this, that they would love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their mind and with all their strength. And so I was looking at the passage in Deuteronomy 6 again, 4, when the Israelites are standing on the edge of the promised land, ready to take their land, be representatives of God's people, the light of the world, as they walk down into their land. And God says, above all else, this is what I want to mark you as a people connected together in community. This is what and how I want you to be marked. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, your very way of life. Impress that upon your children. Talk about that when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie up, uh, lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, meaning that the love of God encompasses how you think and what you do. Write that on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And people of the Jewish faith often have what's called a mezuzah, that they will, it's this little cylindrical device that they attach to the door frame of their house and they write down, love the Lord your God. And they touch it on their way out of the house to remind them that everything they do is governed by the love of God. That's why when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. Everything hangs on that. So the picture we get about this hedge, at least that I got as I was doing some of the research around it, is that the hedge that is meant by training up is that as the children are being brought up in the community, that they're surrounded by the people of God who are defined by the love of God. That as children walk up, the path in which they walk, they are being surrounded by the people of God who love the Lord their God. Imagine a church where if that was true. Whereas our children grew up, maybe they didn't even know it, but they, but they were walking along and they were being surrounded by all kinds of people from all walks of life, bonded together in this crazy journey of faith and being manifested through our love of God that our children grew up in that. I think that is more than a nice idea. I think it's becoming increasingly important in today's age. I'll say more about that in just a minute, but uh, I was just reflecting upon this a little 
on my own journey growing up here, too, in this Wyzetta, Plymouth area. And I don't know what it was like for you growing up wherever it was that you were. But for me, as I reflected, I realized, you know, I had a bit of that hedge around me growing up. I didn't always know it, but it was there. And, and maybe it was because Wyzetta and Plymouth were a little smaller back then. We all kind of knew each other. I mean, to, to get to Dundee Nursery was kind of a thing, you know, to get that far. If we wanted to go all the way on a road trip to Medina Ballroom, right? I mean, we packed the lunch, and I think the world was still flat back then. And so we knew Hamill was kind of the edge of the earth, and you didn't stray into Hamill at all. Had a buddy that was on our basketball team. He lived in Corcoran. And we're like, where is Corcoran? My gosh. It's funny, when I reflected on some of that, I realized that I saw a lot of the same people across a lot of the same contexts in which I was just growing up. So if I was on the basketball team, I was on the team with kids that were also part of the youth group, were also part of my school, maybe part of my neighborhood. As I went to work, I was working with uh, people as a teenager that also were in school and maybe were in youth group and maybe in the neighborhood. And as I even came home, and I didn't always recognize that my parents had people in place, you know, that as our neighbors that sort of fulfilled the big brother kind of role, you know, if they were gone, they'd peer out the windows to make sure we were doing the right thing. We were hedged in. We were surrounded. And, and I didn't know it. People didn't teach me. They didn't sit down and mentor me. They didn't take me to a coffee shop and try to, you know, teach me a bunch of principles. Not that that's bad in and of itself, but, but they just lived their life. And they were around me in, in consistent places. I may have seen my coach in church, all, all of that kind of stuff. And I had this hedge around me of people who were walking out the journey defined by the love of God. Well, things uh, seem a bit different today. I was reflecting on that. And some of you know, I recently did Ph.D. work from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and finished that up. But I did all of my work here or most of it here in fact, I did most of my work in several churches in the area, including even uh, churches here in Wyzetta that you would know. And my research specifically focused in or tried to hone in on why our youth are so often leaving the church right after high school or even during high school, leaving in droves at like a 95% sort of rate. There was one church, as not in Wyzetta, but one in which they had finished the confirmation program, and there was like 116-year-olds that had finished. And then I said, so where's the ministry for the 17- and 18-year-olds? And I literally had to walk through dark sections of closed-down parts of the church to a little room where five of the kids were meeting. Another church, uh, the ministry leader actually acknowledged. She said, again, it wasn't in Wyzetta, it was in another part of the city. She acknowledged, she said, you know, it'd be kind of weird if there was 19 or 20-year-olds still here. Like, why didn't you go away? Why didn't you do the university thing? Why didn't you move? Why All of that, why are you still hanging about? So I was trying to get my head around some of that and what was going on. And among the many things that I found as part of talking with youth ministry people and, and pastors and, and the kids and the parents in both Protestant and Catholic churches, that one of the common themes is that our young people rarely feel as if they have a hedge around them anymore. They rarely see, as I did, the same people that show up in different relational contexts. They live highly fragmented and highly individualistic kinds of lives. The kids they go to school with, they rarely see in church. They may drive 20 minutes outside of the city just to go to a job with a bunch of people that they don't know and don't see outside of 
work. They are in athletic or academic or arts clubs that maybe even are private and are drawing from all around the metro area. They have social networks filled with people they barely know, some of whom are even international they've never met. They live very fragmented lives where they then ultimately, as they do their lives, they go to work here and school here and, and they go to their clubs here and, and, and they do all of that. And really, they end up just trying to fit in, trying to understand the beliefs or the values of each individual environment and try to fit into that. But there's no overarching hedge. There's no overarching story, no overarching sense of beliefs or values that tie them all together. So they say, and I hear this, that they learn to wear an acceptable social mask becoming chameleons who can fit in in any environment, but so often losing the sense of identity, the sense of self, not knowing who they are. In teaching at Bethel even for the last uh, 10 years, and, and my wife Hallie and I talk about this a lot, that maybe eight years ago or so, once or twice a year, I might have a student come up and say, you know, Professor Kapsner, I'm really struggling with an anxiety disorder or a panic kind of situation. And I, you know, often can't get breath. And I'm just, I mean, I just, this low level of anxiety just persists all the time. And that would happen once or twice a year. It's happening consistently across my classes. Now, I'm actually surprised when students aren't feeling that. A student just collapsed right in front of me last term. I, the, the, the volume of emails I get from students that say, I can't even do my work. I can't even breathe. I, I don't know what to attribute it all I think there's probably a host of factors. You probably can figure them out as well as me. I do think it's interesting that this is the, the, the first true generation of Internet children whose relationships are primarily virtual now, who spend so much time trying to sanitize an image of themselves for public consumption so that they can somehow fit in, but all the while hiding all of what's going on and no hedge around them with whom they can be themselves. And the sheer volume of information and stories and thoughts and ideas that come to them from the screens around them all day. I maybe got, you know, a day's worth of information today. It would have taken a year, a couple of generations ago, to get that much information. And, and I would say research suggests that the front end of the brain isn't even developed enough to take in and process and sift through all that information. And it just becomes this overwhelming sense of, I don't even know how to function. And in the absence of a hedge in the absence of a story, in the absence of the people of God walking out the journey together where I'm as concerned for your children as I might be for my own. And then if your children are hurting, I'm going to feel that pain. I'm going to love on them and walk it out with them. In the absence of that, well, maybe it's no wonder. I can't breathe. Hard to know what to do with that, but it's back to what I said earlier. Imagine if a church might be able to help with that. Maybe it's not just a nice idea that we live out life in community, that there's a hedge. And it doesn't mean just hunker down and keep everybody out of That's not what it means out of the world. It means that somehow as our kids are doing the world, that we somehow can figure out a way to create the hedges around them, that there can be a story and a set of values and and a life through down which we are walking together. I love how Kevin here emphasizes the idea of a multi-generational church. It's tough to figure out how to play that out, isn't it? Because that's, that's countercultural. It's countercultural even in the church, where we so often just fragment ourselves by affinity groups and ages, and you go there, and you go there, and you go there, and you go there, because it's about you somehow. It's hard to sort 
that out. And I thought about that a little bit this week, too, just how I would need to change my thinking a bit, perhaps, to maybe be a part of something more multi-generation, to be a part of a hedge around, I think, even about the way in which we so often treat the elders in our society. And that the people who are 60 and 70, 80 and 90 years of life, how for some reason we're one of the few societies in the history of the world that actually rejects the possible wisdom that exists there. That we are a youth-driven kind of culture. That what we do is defined by what the youth care about. Not that we shouldn't care what the youth care. Of course we should. But do we need to reject the wisdom of the elders? Maybe there's something there for those to, to hear from those people that have walked out 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of life, have seen a bit in that, to value that somehow. Kevin, as I was sharing some of this over breakfast this week, he said, well, Peter, that calls to mind a story. And I think it was something along the lines of that as the kids were doing their Sunday school here one Sunday, the ambassador Sunday school here, which is one of the older generation Sunday school classes, went down and spent time in the kids Sunday school class. And the kids all went, the grandmas are here. And they just lit up. And maybe the kids don't even know it, but those grandmas walking in just were, were part of this hedge. You know, and sometimes I think, gosh, you know, I stand up and do this thing and you speak, you know, and we have to have messages and all of that. But, but I know that there are people in here who are spending this very time simply holding the children of others in the nursery right now. People who are 60, 70, 80, and they're sitting right now in the nursery holding the children. To me, whatever else it is I'm doing up here, which I, I, I give value to, I give just as much kingdom value to that. Those young children that they're not even cognitively aware yet are experiencing somewhere in deep levels of who they are, the, the holding love of somebody else in this journey of life that will mark them in some way. That's critical. So instead of rejecting the wisdom of the elders as somehow irrelevant, oh, you don't know. Huh? I, I bet you do. I bet you do. You know, another group that I thought of this week, too, so often in the church is the single people among us, single people for whatever reason. However, they got that way. My experience in the church, I'm embarrassed to say across many environments in which I've been, is that singles ministries basically collapse into nothing more than some sort of Christian speed dating where you need to find somebody, a mate, so that you can once again be socially acceptable in the Christian environment. Why do we think that way? I think about a woman that Hallie and I have known for the better part of 20 years. She's in her early 40s now, and she has walked out this journey with our kids. She's single and, uh, and carries that burden, but we carry a burden of being married together, right? I mean, everybody's carrying some kind of burden. Why is one seen as somehow lesser than? All I know, all I know is that she has walked alongside our kids and not necessarily taken them out for coffee. And all, that. all she's, she's just simply been there, being who she is, as a woman who loves God from her toes. She is an important part of the hedge of our children. Our children see that. They experience her. She just moved to Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, and we're just gutted, you know, losing that kind of friendship for our own life. And we learn from her, and she learns from us, and we're doing that together. Think about the parents uh, in here, too, just that are in the same situation of life as Hallie and I are now with young kids. And how difficult it is to be real 
about how difficult it is. <laughs> and to truly open up our families to allow others in. To see beyond the sanitized images of life. The mass of social acceptance to pretend that it's all okay when we're dying inside. Trying to sort out how to do it. What would it be like to be able to invite others in to that journey? To, to, tr- to learn to trust other people, to care for the well-being of our own children and have them trust us for the well-being of theirs. Really, truly trust that way. We, you know, again, we make it up as we go along. And, and one thing we started doing over the last uh, several years of the journey is when our kids have a birthday party, we do all the requisite birthday stuff, right? I mean, we get the pizza and the cake and all that kind of stuff. And there's presents and kids running all over the place. And I, and I love that. But one thing, and I don't even remember how we started it, but one thing we started doing is that in that birthday season, you know, they get like a birthday week. You know, it's just constantly about a birthday. And in that season of their birthday, we'll have one evening set aside where we have a blessing party for that child. And what we do is we invite some of the people that are closest to us in this journey of faith that are part of the hedge of our kids. And I love it when everybody gets together in the room because when I look around our living room, there's somewhere between 15 and 20 people, and they range in age from 2 to 70. And they're from all walks of life. But they all love the Lord their God. And we are connected with them, and they are part of a critical hedge for our own children and they bless our kids and they anoint our children and they pray over them and and they stand with them and whether or not they actually teach them anything verbally their very presence forms the hedge and then i think even just about the the children among us this morning and not many uh in the service but enough on this and and i think even of the people who might be in their early 20s that are part of this internet generation that i've had to sort all of this out. And if there's anything that I can say just based on the hundreds of students that I get to interact with each week is that I get that growing up involves some degree of pain and turmoil, burdens and struggles and questions, maybe even more so today than anything I ever had to experience. And to walk that out well requires knowing where to look the right places to look for advice and help and encouragement and wisdom. And what I can tell you is that as great as the Internet is, and it's great, it is a rubbish place for help and advice and encouragement and wisdom. And Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and all the rest, I get it. I get their function. They're useful in their way. They're not a place of wisdom. They're screens. They're created by a bunch of young people in a valley somewhere in California to make a whole lot of money on trying to get into your personal life. That's what they are. They're useful in their way. I get it. But the screen can never replace the wisdom and the love and the encouragement and the advice of actual, real, flesh and blood people who love you, and we'll want to walk out the journey of life with you. And the information you get, though good on the Internet, is not always important. And to learn how to sort out that which is important from that which is just sheerly information requires people around you that have walked a bit of the journey and have seen a lot of life. It does make me happy to be a part of an environment 
where the senior pastor cares deeply about seeing an entire group of people come together across the generations for a lot of different reasons. But among them is a place that the people can be the hedge for our children. Do our our children need that today? (laughs) I can't think of anywhere else that they're going to get it unless we can sort out how to do it. Seems like if we can, though, and to the extent that we're able, we might be able to fulfill the ancient and wonderful wisdom of this proverb that to hedge in our children in the way they should go with a group of people who are defined by the love of God, well, maybe when they grow up, they won't quickly depart from it. Ask Nate to come back up and sing a final song. I don't have a conclusion yet. I'm going to wrap the conclusion into the benediction with a blessing for our children here. And the song that we're going to sing, I was compelled by the words of the song as we sang, because a lot of it was about the fact that we just give everything we have to who God is. That, that I think the primary characteristic uh, as a starting point for our faith journey is a willingness to yield all of who we are out of our love for God. And as we sing this, and as and I'd ask you to stand as we sing as well, as we sing it, I want you to be mindful that, yes, sing it about your journey, but, but just even in your spirit, you don't even have to look around, you can if you'd like, but, but even in your spirit, recognize that there's more than just you standing up in this moment, in this place, uh, and in this time that's singing these words, that you are connected, that we are all part of a hedge together as people who are connected, singing the same words with one heart around our love for God. So just, so just let your spirit interact with the spirit around you as well, besides just that direction. Look around. We are the hedge for our kids. You know, it could be even as I was standing there singing now, I, I still need this hedge. And then we are hedges for one another in this. I'm not scared of the world. He who is in us is, is bigger than he is in this world. But, the, but I think the world is not going to get a lot better <laughs> over time. doesn't mean to withdraw from it. But as we engage in it, to be able to be a hedge for one another in that, to not walk out this journey ourselves, how important it is that our children would see that and learn to walk it out that way. I don't have any magic words for our children here this morning, but I would like to offer a blessing for them. And if you're, if there's children around you, uh, feel free to maybe just put your hand on them. If they're too far away, and, and I know if you're 15 in here, it's like, ah, but, but we're going to do it anyway. And if you see children around you, maybe just extend your hand towards them. I'll offer just a, a, a prayer over them and we'll be dismissed. God, I... I ask that in this moment and in this time and space, your spirit that is so very real would plant a seed of kingdom life that is the love of God into the hearts of these children. That in the flood of information and the things competing for attention, that there would be some little germinating piece of truth that would say that is what is true into the hearts of our kids. So that in the very real fear that exists, in the turmoil, in the questions, in the burden, in the wondering, that that seed would begin to grow and take root inside and that it would be covered on either side by the hedges of others who have that same seed of the love of God. Call forth your life in them so that 
as each generation passes and we're long gone, that they too will be called up to be the light of the world. And we continue to walk this out in ways that cuts through the clutter of all the messages of this generation and can still see the truth. I ask that you would plant that in them today by the power of your spirit. And all of us as God's people say, Amen. Blessings as you go.